and welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue podcast, and it's the 81st, and the first podcast in the month of May. I was highly amused this week when I was told Monday there was no school, which actually meant, basically, today I'm going to do even less than I normally do. And Friday is a holiday in the UK as well. There's been no school for more than a month here in the UK, and it's looking like there won't be for a while yet, at least north of the border. Of course, school isn't the only thing that is being massively affected by the coronavirus epidemic. If you're a sports fan, the fact that there might be football or soccer in Germany this month is something to cling to. Social distancing might be an issue, though, for the players tackling and hogging after a goal. Fortunately, my team never has to worry about the last one. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been another week of not very much, really. And the latest sport seems to be trying to get around the grocery store slalom quickly enough that no one aimlessly bumps into you because they don't know what two meters is. I think I'm going to go online and buy a hula hoop and attach some spikes to it to ensure my own personal space. Maybe not such a great idea in the dairy aisles, though, because you might pierce all the plastic milk bottles. So, I'm not really enjoying that weekly task anymore. Before we get to this week's news, I'll tell you who this week's guests are. We talked with Lorraine Kelly, category manager at Synergy Flavors, about the Dairy by Nature range. Stephen Jones, managing director of Summerdale International, about, well, lots of things, from coronavirus to new product launches in Australia. And we have two guests from Bungie Lotus Crow Clan. René Borafein, director of innovation, EMEA and Ficus Fenerheis, Marketing Director for EMEA. And the subject there was pending European legislation on 3MCPDE and how the company is helping customers overcome any hurdles with tackling it. And so we should take a look at this week's news. As has been the case for the last few weeks, there's a lot of it. And I already have enough for tomorrow. Of course, I say that, and now it'll all dry up. Arla Foods Ingredients has launched a clean label ambient yogurt concept to meet Chinese demand. Canadian dairy organizations say the Canadian government misled them on implementation of the trade deal with the US and Mexico, although tomorrow we'll be running an article on them thanking the government for help during the coronavirus crisis. In the UK, an RABDF survey shows more than 1 million litres of milk have been discarded so far. Speaking of the crisis and milk, the European Milk Board has been ramping up its opposition to EU storage measures and there are a few protests planned across Europe for tomorrow, all of which will be great photo opportunities, but that's not so great when I can't get to them. Danone North America has awarded two student grants to further yogurt and gut microbiome exploration, And also in the US, the NMPF is hoping for even more dairy sales after the purchase of $120 million worth of dairy products was announced on Monday. We've had a couple more articles on what dairy-related companies are doing to help during the global coronavirus pandemic. Friesland Campina Ingredients has joined the Global Prebiotic Association. SACO has improved its four-choice range, 
And in France, a new campaign has been launched called Fromagissant to urge the French to support struggling PDO cheesemakers. Maxim issued its May Global Dairy Commodity Update. SIG CombiBlock published its first quarter results. In Ireland, Bordbia launched a new grass-fed standard. And Tetra Pak has announced it has acquired a South African-based asset management company. And there are lots more, which you can read on dairyreporter.com. I was going to say that's just the tip of the iceberg, but maybe I should say the tip of the ice cream. So let's get to this week's guests, if you're still listening after that ice cream pun. First this week, Synergy Flavors, a supplier of flavors, extracts, and essences for the global food and beverage industry, has launched Dairy by Nature in Europe and Asia. And that's a new portfolio of custom solutions for both traditional and plant-based products. And to tell us more about it is Lorraine Kelly, Category Manager at Synergy Flavors. Synergy Flavors is a leading international manufacturer and flavorings, extracts and essences. And we would have extensive experience in food and beverage and nutritional products. We have technical and manufacturing facilities around the world. In Europe, we're based in the UK, Ireland, and more recently with a new acquisition in Italy. And then we have sites in Thailand and Indonesia in Asia, and then also Brazil, Mexico and the USA. Our parent company is Carberry Group, and Carberry are an internationally recognized manufacturer of specialty dairy ingredients and award-winning cheese. As a total, we are owned by four Irish dairy cooperatives, and I guess it's this dairy heritage and dairy expertise that has led to the development of our dairy portfolio, Dairy by Nature, which we'll be chatting to you about today. Yes, that's right. Could you give me a bit of a background on Dairy by Nature and what's in that portfolio? Yeah, of course. So our Dairy by Nature portfolio, it's a range of dairy solutions which are suitable for dairy-based and plant-based food and beverage. In the range, we offer a selection of high-performing dairy flavors, so your cheese, your butter creams, and then also we have regional-specific profiles such as Irish cream or your Hokkaido cheese from Japan. And then another part of the portfolio as well is we offer dairy modulators. So these are solutions that will give improved mouthfeel or help with masking and improve sweetness without impacting the flavor direction of the product itself. As a total, I suppose, key benefits of using our portfolio, one would be authentic flavor. Another is cost savings calorie reduction, helping our customers achieve their calorie targets, and also for companies who want to improve the indulgence, the body, the mouthfeel and richness of their products. And in terms of what they're derived from, are they all derived from different products to start with? How are they all created? Our dairy portfolio, as a flavor house, we have you know, the enviable position of being owned by a parent company who has a really rich dairy heritage. So we have 55 years experience in dairy expertise and our technologies within the business itself. So I suppose when it comes to understanding dairy as an ingredient and dairy as a flavor, we have a really good appreciation of this. We understand the drivers that create dairy flavor and we understand dairy flavor performance within foods themselves. Our portfolio has dairy-based flavors, and these are first manufacture began at our site in Ireland. At the site in Ireland, um, we are vertically integrated with our parent company, Carberry. We are able to use the technologies and the processes there, and we also have access to fresh dairy milk supply, grass-fed milk supply each day. 
And it is this access to the technologies there and to the fresh dairy ingredients that enabled us to create a differentiated range of dairy-based solutions. So we use a bespoke blend of natural aromatics. These will give you your specific flavor direction and aroma, for example, maybe caramelized butter. And then we also ferment dairy ingredients so that the fermentation um, will give us added flavor depth and flavor body to our solutions. On top of that, then, we're able to customize these solutions further. So depending on your target profile, we will either use a proprietary dairy protein technology or a yeast extract technology, which confers additional technical advantages such as improved flavor stability or process tolerance, and all, I suppose, with the aim of achieving optimal dairy character. So that's for the dairy-based flavors. And then in terms of our solutions for plant-based products, we kind of took the same principles in terms of you know, our approach. So we use a science-led approach whereby it's all about understanding the natural dairy ingredient product using sensory and analytical science to, I suppose, judge and determine the sensory challenges associated with our creating solutions to validate product um, performance as well. And then also, I suppose, it was our flavor creation team leveraging the dairy expertise and the knowledge and know-how that's within our business and using that to create plant-based alternatives. In creating our plant-based solutions, I suppose, as well as the challenge of creating a really nice, balanced, creamy dairy taste, we're also really conscious of the challenges that developers face with off notes, which can be associated with your plant-based products. So things like maybe bitterness or earthy notes that can come from the key ingredients. So to overcome this, we also layered our solutions with masking and mouthfeel technologies. And these help to subdue off notes where, you know, for example, you can reduce the impact of the bitterness, you can smooth gritty notes, and also to achieve the authentic dairy character that you're looking for. Have you seen a big increase in demand for plant-based recently? Yeah, I, I think where we've seen this most has been in the U.S. market. I think, obviously, the size of the market is much greater, but in terms of the innovation space where activity is happening right now, dairy-free is particularly vibrant in, in the U.S., right across product categories. But I would say in recent months as well in Europe, for us as a team, we're looking at vegan-based products or plant-based products as well. So for Dairy by Nature, what kind of customers would be using this and what products would they be using them in? I suppose what's nice about it is it's suitable for plant-based and it's suitable for dairy-based. So straight away, you're, you're able to meet the needs of both types of markets. It's also quite a versatile range, so it has cross-category appeal. We would work with beverage and bakery manufacturers, and equally it's applicable to dairy, nutrition, and savoury products. In terms of dairy applications, it will be really helpful in ice cream product development, dairy desserts, processed cheese, and beverages. And then when we created it, I suppose we wanted to solve challenges for the developer and we kind of identified four key areas where we felt that the solutions could benefit most. The primary driver really was authenticity of flavor. So people are just in general as the marketplace or as consumers needs grow, we're really always searching for something that gives us authentic character that when you taste it, you can taste that it is a rich, natural, fresh churned butter taste or has a really great authentic cheddar flavor. 
So that was really important for us, but also that those solutions that we create will withstand the process that our manufacturers are using and delivers that signature taste they're looking for. Another key area is helping developers manage their recipe costs. And I think both now more than ever and in the months to come, this is going to become much more topical for manufacturers. So our solutions help um, manufacturers to reduce the dairy content of their recipes without compromising taste. Because when they use our solutions, what they do is they elevate or boost the existing taste of their dairy ingredients and prolong the flavor. So an example of this might be in a cheese bread. They can reduce the content of natural cheese in their bread and using one of our cheese flavor solutions boost it to have the same um, intensity of cheese flavor as previous. Another example would be maybe reducing butter in a product or reducing cream in a sauce or in a dairy dessert and still achieving the indulgent taste that you had originally. Two other areas that we would have worked with developers in mind was calorie reduction. So I think particularly in our UK market, we see that, you know, calorie targets are definitely a challenge for developers because when we reduce our calories, it also has the effect of causing an imbalance in the flavor profile of the product. When you take fat or sugar out, you end up with, you know, less flavor impact or sweetness or mouthfeel. Um, so our solutions are really effective at building back that indulgent note and also balancing flavor by masking acidity, maybe in yogurt or improving creaminess and sweetness. And then finally, um, the fourth solution, I suppose, the key attribute that the solution brings to developers is to standardize product flavor and manage off notes. So often, you know, in product development, you may have variants in flavor profile of your dairy ingredient supply or your plant-based ingredient supply. And our solutions help manage and minimize this so that the consumer gets a consistent tasting product on each eat. The press release that came out mentioned Europe and Asia. Is this already available in other areas or is it going to be launched in other areas if it isn't already? Yeah, we actually, we launched in the US last year at Supply Side West in October and there was a really positive uptake there by our customers. I think maybe continuing, you know, the growing consumer demand for authenticity of flavor, the idea of having trust and traceability of your source and definitely the growth of dairy-free um, alternatives are driving innovation in that space. So Europe and Asia was a planned regional rollout for us and we're getting positive response already, but hopefully, you know, it, it will continue to be a success for us. Are you always adding to the portfolio or do you sort of, once that's done, you move on to something else? Definitely. I think the portfolio will continue to evolve to meet the needs of, you know, the, our existing marketplace and as we grow with customers as well. So be it creating, you know, new regional flavor profiles that are on trend or also solving new process challenges that our customers come up against. Another part, I suppose, of how we work is that we love to partner with our customers so that we can help create bespoke solutions for their particular market or the product itself. And um, of course, with continued investment as well, we plan to strengthen our capabilities further and that will bring innovation in the future as well. Now it's just a short hop, at least for us, across the North Sea to the Netherlands. It's always important to keep up on the latest rules and regulations relating to food. And in Europe, there are going to be new rules on the levels of 3MCPDE in food. So what does it mean if you're a food producer? How do you respond? Well, 
Fortunately, Bungie Lotus Crowclan has it covered. To tell us more about the legislation are two people from the company, René Borafein, Director of Innovation, EMEA, and Ficus Svenaheis, Marketing Director for EMEA. And it is René we will hear from first. And I asked if we could get a little bit of background on the company. Yes, of course, with pleasure. So Jim Bungie Lotus Crowclan is the specialty oils and fats division of Bungie. We also do a lot of specialty ingredients. We are the largest producer of lecithins, which is a very important emulsifier, also very popular in the dairy industry specifically. And we have a broad portfolio of oils and fats, seed oils, tropicals, and those go into basically every single imaginable food product that we consume. We have a lot of business in food service as well as in packed goods. And at the moment, of course, with the corona crisis, we see a switch there. We serve the entire market as part of Bangui between the farm and the fork, helping to feed the world. We have an enormous footprint with plants in every on every continent. In Europe, our plants are, are concentrated mostly in Northwest Europe. We are working to supply the entire region of Europe, Middle East Africa from here as well, but also from our other sites around the globe. We have a very deep setup when it comes to sourcing. We have a very strong sourcing and trading uh, function that helps us to work in a very integrated way. And that's also very important uh, on the topic of contaminant mitigation, because it means that you have to control things all along the supply chain from the source until it gets delivered. The role of fats, I think it's important to mention that, uh, is, is really to create mouthfeel. And, and that is especially important in, in the confectionery bakery and the dairy and the culinary applications where we uh, we see that really the liking is, is also created in a large part due to the specific fats that we sell. And for that, we have to do a lot of co-creation with our customers to get that right, because it's not something that you easily catch in numbers and specifications how to specify uh, the mouthfeel or, or the flavor delivery from a food product and, and that's something that we always have to tweak uh, because the slightest deviation from a product specification can make or break that effect so, so therefore we have our our creative studio as a safe place for our customers to work with us to play with different fat solutions for their products to get that right and there are limits coming up on three mcpde levels in food in the eu i wonder if you could give me a bit of background on that why the levels are being reduced and what the legislation is going to be Sure, yes, of course. Uh, we have known about 3 since 1978, so the story is 42 years old. And we've had legislation on 3 since 2001 on soy sauce and on acid hydrolyzed vegetable proteins, which goes into savory applications as a flavor ingredient. Now, the European Commission has, has done a risk assessment and has found that, that it makes sense to introduce these limits. It has been a, a long way to get there. Like I said, 42 years old and then since, since 2001 already some legislation in place. But really, uh, it started to come to the surface much more once uh, EFSA, the European Food Safety Agency, published a report in 2016 where Crystal Esther was really shown to be a very critical thing to monitor. There we have already legislation in place. And now the Commission is also coming with legislation on 3MCPD, which is a related component. And the importance of having both legislations in place is very high because 
the mitigation efforts for these two contaminants uh, are to some extent counteracting. So if we had legislation in place only on one of these two, it might be that we create an increase on the other one. So it's very critical that we, ha we maintain the balance, that we keep both contaminants strictly under control, especially to safeguard the health of our uh, younger population. And that's also what we see in this uh, new legislation. The proposal is to create not only legislation for the general food consumption, in addition to infant formula, but also specify something that we called the toddler category. So that's food for young children in the age of six to 36 months, so half a year to three years of age. And that is related to the body weight and, and to the diet pattern that is observed for these children. And the legislation that comes in place specifies different limits for different types of oils as well. And that is related to the presence of these contaminants in different types of oils and also to the exposure, the consumption patterns that are, are related to these oils. So regarding these two contaminants, um, uh, Threamsbd has been assessed now and there's a limit coming. Gristidol ester, on the other hand, uh, has been classed in, uh, differently in a way that we may see continued attention for that with a further tightening of limits over time. And that's uh, because of, of the special class in, in which it has been put. So I don't want to go into technical details, but my expectation is that, that we may hear more about that in the future. So indeed, we are today extremely busy with getting compliant to the current proposal for legislation that is expected uh, at the end of this year. But at the same time, we need to uh, continue to work on even better solutions. Right. So I guess you're not just working on the the R&D side of things, you also have to pay a lot of attention to what's happening in, in the legislation departments of Europe as well. Yes, and apart from that, uh, we're not only working on the solutions, but also on the analytics. We have taken the steps in the last uh, years to develop the analytics to, to the extent that we can use them for positive release that we have been working with already since uh, a number of years, especially for our infant formula. Already since four years, we are supplying fats for infant formula uh, with positive release. That means that nothing goes out our gate without having been proven to be safe. And the analytics are really now accepted by the international community, the ISO organization, uh, and also, also the AOCS. As an industry standard, uh, it's been ring tested with a wide range of companies. And that's a part that we're really proud of. And that those analytics, of course, are an important part of our operational capabilities, and we need to also keep working on that. And what products do you have that this would affect, and how would that affect the dairy industry? So, like I said, we offer a full range of uh, liquid oils, that is soybean oil, sunflower oil, rapeseed oil, for example, and also the tropical oils, palm, shea, coconut, and those oils are prominently used in the dairy industry, and we'll come to some, some examples in a, in a moment. But really what I would like to say first is that we are at the moment the only supplier that offers already today the entire portfolio with mitigation, meeting all these different requirements. And that, of course, is a very specific customer question. Uh, what kind of population is the customer targeting with their product? Uh, and therefore, what kind of oil and what kind of limits do we need to use for that? We have the full portfolio available with the different levels today. Yeah, that's in a nutshell the uniqueness of what we're trying to communicate today. And that is important because it takes time to implement these things also on the customer side. 
the legislation is expected to come in force into force uh, by January, at least for 3MCPD. Uh, for Christo Esther, there is an indication that there may be a transitory period until June next year. So there's a little bit more time there, but you need to run trials, make sure it works, qualify the material, get all the administration in place, and that takes time. And it, it's really not only qualifying us as supplier, but also making sure that it runs through the process on the customer side perfectly well, and that it's ready for full production by January. And then eight months is really not a lot of time. Just to build on that, uh, René, I think if, if you see how it impacts the dairy industry, uh, Jim, it is, if you look to the big categories where these plant-based oils and fats are being implemented, is is very much into confectionery, dairy milk, which is quite important a category from a customer or industry point of view. And secondly, what you see as an enormous trend in the dairy industry is also the plant-based alternatives. And there are um, certain categories where fat play a more important role or being a more larger part of the of the end product, like cheese, plant-based cheese, plant-based creamers but also plant-based ice creams. So in these concepts, A, they use the fats and oils that we supply, and B, they also moving more into concepts. Uh, sometimes they are toddler concepts, but a lot of these concepts, like an ice cream, certain creams are also family concepts, which are consumed by a whole range of family members, ranging from one to three-year-olds to basically 70, 80-year-olds. And I think that is something into account to create awareness at, at the industry and the customers that these products are being eaten by certain age groups, and therefore they need to consider how they want to implement this, uh, this legislation as well for themselves. And as far as the legislation is concerned, if all of your portfolio is compliant, how are you, is it really just more information that you're trying to get out to your customers to help them get through this? Yeah, there's a few things that we see. On the one hand, as you say, the legislation, what Rene is saying, we've been working on that since 2016. What we found out uh, a bit is there's a lot of interest and curiosity in this, uh, in this new legislation. It showed as well uh, yesterday we had... I think 520 participants in the webinar with a, with a lot of engagement and a lot of questions. So it shows that there's a lot of questions on it. Sometimes I feel that there's maybe the awareness is not fully landed yet. And also the timing is also quite soon already. We expect this legislation to be effective 1st of January. So we live now in May. So in order to implement it, it's coming quite close now already to start thinking about how do you want to implement this legislation into your portfolios from a customer point of view so i think that is uh, that's quite important that we get out now and that we make customers aware and that we have the discussion with them right now basically how they want to implement it will it be an easy transition for your customers to make i'll happily answer that one we offer our current portfolio and in principle that's a plug and play switch for our customers if need be so the specifications on the functionality side, on the productivity side, and on the quality side remain practically unchanged. That's exactly because uh, we can do this uh, at, at full scale, and we have implemented this in our factories in a way that, that we can deliver the same quality without suffering any hiccups or any problems with that. And that, I have to say, has not been an easy ride in a way. It's taken us a significant amount of time and effort to make it work in a way that we can actually do that switch in, a, in this plug-and-play way. It sounds easy. You, you take your product uh, and you mitigate it. However, uh, in practice, it, it is very tedious and it requires a lot of effort to get it also completely stable. 
because we have to deal with a lot of uh, seasonal variability as well in our raw materials, on top of a lot of changes in, in our demand. So our production needs to be extremely flexible, and that means that this is another thing to, to really uh, watch extremely closely, also because the levels are low. So we need to get it perfectly right to make it work, and then that has taken a significant time. But we're there, and, and, and that's why we are happy to come out and, and serve our customers in this way. So it's really just a case of you're there and your customers aren't there yet and sort of bridging that gap, I guess. Exactly. Yes, that's why we have had to come out already at this time as well to, to alert everybody that this is coming and that it is something that is not to be taken lightly because we know how much effort it has taken us. And will all of this affect the final price that the end consumer will pay? Well, we offer this at a very competitive price. And looking at the total impact on a food product, we think it should be negligible. Uh, we have to adhere to the Alara principle. Uh, we have to do what is achievable, uh, what is reasonably achievable. And so we believe that this is fully in line with, with that principle. We're not asking uh, something that is impossible from our customers in this. Otherwise, it would also not make sense. And I guess your customers have to make these changes regardless if they're going to be legislated. Well, having said that, the burden here is on the oil for most categories. Only with infant formula is the burden of proof on the formula. So it is on us to supply an oil that is compliant. Uh, and of course, that's something that we need to do with our customers, uh, but it's not something that we can just let go if the customers are not interested. We have to take ownership here, and we do. And so what's the next step for you? Is it simply keep getting the message out there and ensuring that everybody is compliant? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that is important to get the message out, to understand how to make the customers fully aware of what's going to happen. And as a next stage, it's a kind of to engage with these customers to see how we can help them basically in making and enabling them ready before this legislation comes in place. So that those are the, the steps that we that we're taking. We've done a press release for this. We have been talking to our current customers in the past months and today. And yesterday we had a webinar as well to really reach out to a kind of a wider audience uh, across Europe to make uh, also the wider audience, which have not been in our, in our kind of um, uh, customer list, to make them as well aware what is going to happen uh, in this legislation. So the awareness is one, and the next stage is the, the engagement with them. And then it's soon also about implementation and talking with the customers how they want to, uh, to be ready for this legislation. And is that webinar still available online? So the webinar is still uh, available and we have uh, as well a very clear presentation decks of this new legislation available as well for customers. If they reach out to us, we can share that with them. And next, it's to a chat with Stephen Jones, Managing Director of Summerdale International in the UK. The British cheese exporting company has just launched a new range in Australia, and the chat includes that. The launch last year of products into China, and of course, coronavirus. How have things been going with your business? Um, yeah, we've been ticking along. I mean, um, and it's interesting how... You know, the whole global marketplace is very similar. So like in the UK, obviously, you know, the food service industry is dead. And that's the same in Australia, the same in America, uh, same in Far East, China, and places like that. So everything is exactly the same. But, you know, our retail offerings are going quite well. I mean, um, 
people still need to eat, so they are obviously you know switching to retail rather than to uh, restaurants and pubs and things. So we've kept shipments going to the states; they've been going all right. I mean, it's a quiet time of the year anyway, but it has been happening. Australia's been fine. China, ironically, is opening up, and we hadn't done much in China in January, February, but um, now the retailers there are bouncing back and wanting stuff. So we've got you know reasonable shipments going in um, May to back to China. So that's coming up. I mean, you know, our main. One of the main sort of growths in China has been the opening of Costco. Costco opened in Shanghai last um, September or whatever it was, and um, you know started very well and obviously went went very quiet. But that's you know that's coming back quite strongly. So I think we will see things happening. I mean, Australia's and New Zealand seem to be um, you know relaxing a little bit. I mean, they've been fortunate; they've been managed to control it all. You know, the entry points into um, Australia and New Zealand are very limited. I mean, certainly a certain number of international airports and control it and they've managed to control it and so i think they are easing things a little bit but again slowly slowly i think um you know like restaurants and everything will be limited to the number of seatings they can do and, and that sort of thing certainly yeah we're seeing spark of life coming back into those markets are going to be quiet america as well and it's retail and retail seems to be quite buoyant yeah no we're not we're not too badly off i mean logistically we're keeping the warehouse going because we've, we've sort of isolated it virtually office staff are mainly working from home so Again, we're just, you know, essentially you've got to just be safe to keep your business going and just be very careful on, um, you know, what people do and where they travel and that sort of thing. The saving grace, I suppose, really is that, you know, we've got no travel costs. I mean, we stopped all international and uh, domestic travel. We would have done several exhibitions this year. We would have done the Fancy Food Show, the IDDBA, um, the Food and Hotel Asia Show in Singapore. So three big shows there would have, you know, cost us quite a bit of money in exhibitions and in travel. So, um, so that's not... Uh, through in the book so it's so we can afford for the uh, sales to be down a little bit because the costs are down considerably i did an article yesterday after finding out that the french are trying to boost sales of artisan cheeses and the you know the uh, the, the rarer cheeses because yeah. initially what had happened was people had sort of they, they still were buying cheese it's just they were buying cheaper cheese and bulk cheese have you, yes, have well, you noticed any of that yeah, well, that's what's happening, I think. Yeah, people are concentrating on the things. That, I mean, essentially what we found in, say, in America is that, you know, the deli counters are closed, and that's where we would sell a lot of wheels where people would go and have a piece of cheese cut off because the deli counters close either because of the hygiene, but also more because, you know, they need shop staff to be filling shelves and, um, you know, controlling people outside the door and that sort of thing. So the fact that deli counters are closed, I think that affects a lot of the specialty stuff. And I think that's affecting a lot of people like, you know, the small producers in this country, um, you know, they're suffering. But what some are doing, they're getting together. And, you know, I mean, what, what I've noticed is like a village I live in is just full of courier vans every day. I mean, people are ordering so much on the internet. I mean, you know, we've got a, a meat company that's doing meat. We've got a uh, fish company that's um, delivering fish around the uh, around the villages. Um, and some of these cheese companies have got together and, um so, like, you can order a sort of a 30-pound box of cheese and get a nice selection of cheeses in it, um, which you won't get in the supermarket. So I think they're having to rethink the way things are doing just to survive. You know, it's not just happening in dairy. Someone's telling me, you know, the price of mints is higher than prime steak at the moment because people want to buy mints just to make sort of spaghetti bolognese at home or, you know, mince dishes. So um, people's uh, eating um, habits have changed quite a lot. And I think that might carry on. I don't know. I think, um, you know, it is so easy now to... Um, order and get stuff delivered that um, people are going to say well do i want to go and queue up in a supermarket and have to keep two meters behind people and you know that's sort of quite a game changer i think the only thing that has changed here really is that it's very difficult to have groceries delivered by the 
the big retailers because the, all of their slots are filled up. They just yeah. haven't been able to meet the increased demand yet. Whether that will change, I don't know. No, no, I think it will change. I think a lot of people are saying, well, you know, do I need to go to a supermarket? Um, so they might have to change their offerings and what they could deliver. But um, but certainly the courier van, something I stopped talking to one the other day, I was asking for directions. I looked in the back and it's a white van and it was, you know, stacked to the roof with boxes. People are being forced to um, treat things differently. And in fact, you know, as an office or as a business, we've been communicating a lot more by by things like Zoom and everything else. And um you know, I think we've been having more conversations between the sort of senior management than we normally have if we're in the office because, you know, in the office you just might nod and have a chat with somebody. But, you know, this is set meetings. We do two or three a week at a set time, and it does mean that we all get on and, um, you know, talk over issues. So um, ongoing, that might be a way that, you know, we can run a business. We don't all need to be checking into the office every day. But, um, no, I'm, you know, reasonably optimistic about our business that it's a case of controlling costs, you know, and... Um, keep you in front of people. I mean, communication's, you know, the big thing now and the ability to communicate. We're looking at a thing and I'm not sure whether you come across it called Range Me. Uh, someone's looking at it for us where you, um, if you've got buyers looking for things, because obviously, you know, with the change of doing business, you know, you don't sit in front of buyers anymore, but do you need to or can you present your things to buyers, you know, with an electronic media, you know, maybe, because I don't know how international travel's going to fare. I mean, I can't, you know, normally we would have done a fair bit of international travel in the year and probably won't be anything this year so obviously contact with buyers you know there's no exhibitions no contact with buyers so you know how you develop new products and everything is is a bit of a challenge and um this range me thing i you know it's a, it's a sort of like a marketplace where you know buyers looking for different types of a product they can um you know they can go on and have a look at it so those sort of things i think will um will increase the people's um ability to market their products without actually getting on a plane or doing an exhibition might be um, might be quite a changer. I, you know, and it might be tough for exhibitions, even if it's on, whether anyone will want to go. You know, I don't know. It's not just a case of, you know, the exhibition being on. It's whether people uh, actually want to fly and go there and attend a, an exhibition. So it may well be that, you know, we don't see any, you know, some of these big exhibitions, you know, just disappearing. Maybe, you know, we'll find out there are other ways of doing it. You know, you often get forced into these things by circumstance. So, um, you know, we, we could see a whole new... This, creating a whole new way of doing business. Do you do a lot of um, communication with the end consumer or because obviously to get the message out there for people to buy the products through things like uh, social media, do you, do you do much of that or is that left yes, more Yes, we to do. The... I mean, um, obviously on our website, we've got followers on the website and we're trying to work with some of our distributors, you know, to get our products onto their websites and, and to communicate that way. But um Again, you know, sort of consumers are getting bombarded with so much information that, you, you know, it's very easy to get lost in that sort of thing. We've just launched a range of cheeses under the Westminster brand in Australia. So, um, you know, that's gone on our um, Facebook page. It's gone on our um, Instagram page and those sort of things like that. Um, and hopefully, you know, we'll have followers picking up on that. But they're more likely to be, I mean, there will be some individuals, but more likely to be, uh, retailers and people like that to get the message through but we just sort of done a range of four four different cheeses under our Westminster range in a 150 gram because that's that's the other thing we've found is that um, as cheese prices have gone higher and particularly in the states where we've had this 25% duty on so we've reduced some of the pack sizes from 200 grams to 150 gram so that's what we've launched that because well, you know price per kilo they're paying a bit more but it's a lower unit price so we've a 150 gram pack is retails at a you know 795 rather than 200 gram pack which would be 1095 and that's 
you know, a big difference there that people um, will pick up a 795 pack rather than a 1095 pack. You know, we've been building up business in Australia. We never really had a decent range. You know, it's all different labels and things like that. So we decided about six or eight months ago, this is before this happened, that we needed to, um, you know, have some sort of uniformity or some sort of range so that people bought one product they liked it and they would pick up another one. So that was the emphasis that we decided you know, we've had Westminster for some time, but like in Australia, we had like one under Westminster, we had one under Somerdale, and we had one under something else. So it was just trying to um, unify a bit, a bit of a range. You were in Costco in Shanghai, was it? The last yes, Costco talked? opened um, their first store in China um, back in September. You had to be a member. I think they had 200,000 people apply for membership before the store opened. So a phenomenal amount of uh, interest and the day it opened, the police had to close it down at three o'clock because people were just, you know, it just filled it up, and they were people were queuing for three hours to get in. You know, every time they let twenty out, they let another twenty in. That's in Shanghai, so you've got a population of twenty-six million in one city. So Costco have got plans for another one in, I think maybe two in 2021, and then you know they could end up with a lot there. I mean, you know, they are, they've done very well in Southeast Asia. They've got a lot in Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, and obviously 12 in Australia. So, you know, it's a company that seems to know how to do things internationally. And so the Shanghai one, we've got about five lines in there. And um, it, yes, it's a, it's a good little business, but obviously it's only one warehouse. So, you know, as it grows, it'll be, um, you know, a good market for us. All right. Yeah. The last time we spoke, I think it was just launching in there. So it's been going well? Yes. Well, it went quiet, you know, in January, February, because everyone sure. was literally, I mean, you know, their lock-in was serious i mean they you know like high-rise apartments everything they they bolted the doors and let anyone out cut off the elevators um you know certainly in wuhan and places like that i mean they were serious lock-ins um more so than ours or spanish um so obviously january february nobody really came out you know people were getting food delivered to the door and things like that but um you know it is i mean there's still some cities that are in um in a lockdown but you know others are opening up now and um you know they're just being very careful i think you know, they don't want a second spike. I think that's the fear that everyone has is that, um, you know, you're going in the right direction and then you get, a, get another spike. And that's, again, the same story all over the world. OK, that's it for another week. Another sunny week here, although still a bit chilly in the mornings, but relatives in North America have been telling us they've had more snow. So I'm definitely not complaining about the occasional chilly morning. I hope where you are the weather is good and that you're able to get out at some point to exercise or even go to work. One thing about the food industry is it's definitely essential. We already have three interviews lined up for next week and one of those is already done. So it's fun juggling time zones for interviews around the world. This week I even saw an error on a new site that had a coronavirus related story with the date 2030 on it. Please, no. I also got a press release from Thailand where their years are numbered differently and it's already the year 2563, which means that those songs in the year 2525 and Russia's 2112 are already in the past. As I mentioned earlier, it's a holiday on Friday in the UK, so that means I'll be able to... Well, I won't be able to do that much at all, really. Perhaps we can take a rain check on the holiday. I somehow doubt that. Okay, until next time, stay safe, take care of yourself and others, and, of course, thanks for listening.